Well, what are we doing this morning? What we're doing is we are worshiping God. And it's very good at the beginning of uh, the use of a new building for us to remember what is worship. If you have a Bible, would you look at Revelation with me, please? Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I don't know if you're like me, but I come across Tap and Winslow, the whole way across the bottom of the city. And every single Sunday I come across there, I notice something. I notice all the golfers out on the golf course. Then when I come down here, often I notice soccer players playing on the soccer field. And always what I think is, I think of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the hero of many of us in London, preaching, and him saying one Sunday that if people have a desire to go to the shore, to the beach, out to the ocean, um, say they're going down from London to Eastbourne on the coast or beachyhead, he said if they have a desire to go there, by all means, have them go there on the Lord's Day. He said, but in the church are the people that love God. And I ask you this morning, do you love God and is it the food of your week to come and to worship God? Is this the time of greatest joy in the week? Now, this morning may have been not real joyful, but if you look over a long period of time and you watch your reactions to the worship of the people of God, is it your testimony like David says in Psalm 73 that He was almost completely depressed about the sleekness and wealth of the evil and that he almost despaired about it until he came into the house of God. And we see this again and again in Scripture. We see it in our own hearts that you can get very discouraged about the prevalence of evil in your own home, let alone at the university and on television. In your own heart. And then you come in the house of God and you realize that God is merciful to sinners and that God is waiting, that it is his will that not any should perish and that he is waiting for us to approach him in repentance and faith. Well, if it is not our desire to join in worship and if we would rather be out on the golf course or playing soccer or who knows, you know, getting ready for Saturday, Sunday afternoon football, Eternity is going to be a very, very hellish place for us because eternity is going to be the worship of God. And those who have here done before what they are going to do there will love eternity because eternity will be worship. If you look at Revelation 19, you see after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, 
Give praise to our God, all you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And so there we have in eternity, in the presence of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, a call to worship. It says what? Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then verse 6 is the response of the people. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And so we see that eternity will be what time has been. Eternity will be the praise of God. Eternity is not going to be about us being reunited with our husbands and wives who have died. It's not going to be about us meeting the children that we miscarried. It's not going to be about us finally not having a gammy leg or Bob, you know, being able to talk so that everybody understands him. Now, yes, all those things will happen in eternity and they will be sources of joy to us. Eternity is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. And, you know, you can imagine the sound of multitudes of multitudes, more than you can number, when they say that it's like the sound of thunder. You know, think what thunder thunder sounds like. Think of thunder up in the mountains where it's echoing off the different peaks. It doesn't get lost in the cornfields. Boing, and then it hits the peak, and it's back, and it's hammering your chest like a respiratory therapist, you know. That's what it's going to be like in heaven, and it's worship. Well, this building is a building that's dedicated to worship, and... It's appropriate that we think about worship. And I want to spend a few minutes uh, asking you, turning to uh, our scripture text, which is Acts 13, 1 to 3. But as you turn, Acts chapter 13, please. As you turn, let's think about what the nature of worship is in America today. In America today, the church struggles with a problem that infects a very large part of the population, and that problem is selfishness. And it's the selfishness of children and teenagers and young adults and parents and grandparents. It's the selfishness of the single, the widowed, those who are older. It's the poor. It's the rich. Everyone. In the church, we can see this selfishness in pastors as well as the congregation. It no, it's no respecter of persons or denominations. It's among Baptists, Lutherans, Pentecostals, Anglicans. Uh, it, it, it's among Roman Catholics. And the selfishness in the church is not what we usually think of the selfishness between human beings, say, for instance, Sam and Peter or Mary and Joan. But the selfishness I'm speaking of is the selfishness between us and God. Our failure isn't in neglecting to think about and care for one another, although there's more than enough of that to go around. Uh, I watch you during worship in the back sometimes, and you can almost predict the tension that exists in some families, and certainly in our marriages and with our children. 
We are selfish. We have a lot of sins to confess just on that level when we come to worship, right? Uh, If you're godly, you won't hide that. You'll admit it, and you'll realize that you are a real sinner in need of real blood of Jesus. But I'm not talking about that selfishness this morning. I'm talking about the selfishness between us and our Maker. We have been made by God, and we have been made to give Him praise. That is our purpose. Man's chief end, main purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so when we think about this selfishness, one way to look at it is to ask ourselves what our expectations are of worship. When we go to worship and we leave, what do we think? Do we think, was I uplifted? Do we think, did that do for me what I needed to have done? You know, how do I feel about that? Well, let's see, the music, this, the scripture lesson, that, the, the personality of the pastor and his clothing, that, the building, this. And this is the way we approach worship in America today. We approach it with completely self-centered uh, and largely critical approaches. Uh, and it's all about us. Do you guys know that phrase? It's a phrase some people use sometimes. It's all about us. Or maybe you're even more of a salt system. It's all about me. <laughs> it's not even us. It's me, right? You remember John F. Kennedy's question, ask not what your country can do for you, but rather ask what you can do for your country. I actually remember him saying that on the radio. I remember hearing it. I remember thinking when I heard it, that's interesting. We've all heard it, right? Don't ask what the country can do for you, but ask what you can do for the country. And the church, too often Christians are found asking what worship has done for them rather than what their worship has done for God. And the clearest expression of this failure to think about church and worship properly is a little phrase I've heard more times than I can count. And it's the phrase, our worship experience. You realize that the word experience there completely sucks it into ourselves. Because it's about us, isn't it? Our worship experience. This phrase is heard from the mouths of pastors and other worship leaders who ought to know better. You can see the same problem showing up in the way people talk about how they do or don't like a particular church or how happy or unhappy are with a particular worship service. Uh, People could be heard saying, that was a wonderful service. That solo was so uplifting, I just got goosebumps up and down my back. Or I'm never going back to that church. No one ever talks to me, and they act like just because I'm older, I'm not as important as other people, or just because I'm a college student, I'm not as important as other people. Or about a pastor, if he doesn't watch out, there's not going to be many people coming to hear him anymore. You can't keep talking about sin all the time. People don't come here every Sunday to hear someone tell them they're sinners. They come to be what? Encouraged or uplifted. Or a pastor says, I'm going to activate my dossier. The people of this church just don't appreciate me. I'll look for a loving church. Parents say about their children, Johnny hasn't been coming to church because he doesn't want to. It isn't geared towards kids his age, and we can't force him to do something that doesn't mean anything to him, can we? 
Now, let's ask a few questions. Number one, whose benefit is worship for? Is it for us or is it for God? Number two, is worship work or is it entertainment? Number three, if worship is work, should we expect it to be easy or hard work? And should we anticipate completing the task quickly or slowly? Number four, who should join in the work? Just those who understand what's going on or the entire family of God. Are all the people who assemble for the work of worship, both literate and illiterate, old and young, adults and children? Number five, and when we complete our corporate worship, should we expect to leave our work behind feeling a certain way, say, for instance, lighthearted or jovial? And number six, what's to be the standard by which we judge our work? Is the congregation's mood an accurate way to judge the quality of its labor? And if so, which feelings or emotions or moods indicate that God has been served properly? Only feelings of good cheer, happiness, or contentment? And if that's the case, then why shouldn't we just go to a good tavern for the evening? Alcohol, after all, can make a man jovial. And he can leave content. His wife might not be, but he will be. Many men walk home from the tavern singing quietly to themselves, happy to be alive and blissfully forgetful of all their problems. Is this what we expect of worship? So let's read the word of God, Acts 13, 1 to 3. This is the word of God. It's eternally true. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, our text begins by telling us there was a church in Antioch. There was a church, a group of Christians gathered together in the city of Antioch, and we're told that this church had a number of prophets and teachers. Now, I could spend some time talking about the nature of the gifts of prophecy and teaching in the early church. And this is a critical area today because many people say that when Paul says that he doesn't allow a woman to exercise authority over a man or to teach him, that this should be understood in the context of there being women who were prophetesses in the New Testament. And we know that there were women who were prophetesses in the New Testament. But here I want to point out that all of those mentioned are men. All right. And so when you have a direct statement of Scripture, I don't allow, and then you have other incidental appearances of women doing something that appears to contradict the general statement, all right, you don't interpret the general statement and the general command by the incidental appearances. And this confirms the fact that when you sum up those who had the normal teaching and preaching authority of the church in the early church, it's men. They're all men. Doesn't mean women didn't have some position, some activity that approximates this. Doesn't mean it isn't difficult to understand that in the context of this. Jesus has 12 male disciples. Here we have the leaders of the church summed up there in Antioch. They're all men, all right? Now, we have to say that today because, boy, we hate this doctrine of scriptures. I won't ever lose an opportunity to point it out that God's word is clear on this issue. 
Now, our text tells us there was a church in Antioch, a group of Christians gathered there. And then it tells us of the prophets and teachers there. And what do we know besides that they were men? Well, number one, we have Barnabas, literally the son of encouragement. This was the guy who served as Paul's advocate when, you know, Paul had been going around killing Christians. So he comes back to Jerusalem and quite understandably, the Jerusalem Christians don't want him. You know, they don't want him around. And Barnabas then is his advocate. Barnabas goes to them and says, no, chill out. God has done a real work in this man. Let him in. And so you can understand why he's called son of encouragement. Barnabas was also the man uh, that would accompany Paul when he would go around often. Barnabas was also the man that had a fight with Paul over John Mark. You remember that. And they split for a while. Uh, Barnabas was also the man that fell into the error of Peter when Paul resisted him to his face over the issue of circumcision. So Barnabas is a lovable figure in the New Testament. Um, Then the second prophet or teacher that we have in this church is a guy named Simeon, also called Niger. Now, Niger means black, and so Simeon, one of their teachers and preachers, was black. Some think that this was the same Simeon who carried the cross for Jesus on the road to Golgotha. Last night I was reading uh, an account. Jerry Falwell died recently. and I was reading an account of Will Williman, who was the dean of chapel at Duke, on a dare one time, decided he was going to invite uh, Jerry Falwell down to speak at Duke. Well, the ruckus that caused was incredible. And the students, the professors were calling for Will Williman to be fired from his job. And so you can imagine that he was a little uptight when Falwell actually accepted. He didn't think he would. So Falwell gets down to Duke and everybody there is loaded for bear. And very quickly, one of the students raises his hand and says, ask Dr. Falwell, uh, how many blacks do you have up at Liberty University? I wish I had the text in front of me to read to you, but Falwell responded this way. He said, do you know, he said, this is something that has caused me endless heartache. He said, I have grieved over this and I have worked and worked and worked to get it better. He said, currently, I'm ashamed to tell you that we only have 12 percent African-American students on our campus. He says, I've talked to Coretta Scott King about this, and she says, Jerry, don't worry about it. But he said, I just can't stop grieving over the low percentage that we have on our campus. And then he said, now, he said, those of you here at Duke, (laughs) he said, do you know what your percentage of African-Americans is? He said, it's 6%. Do you know you have 50 times the endowment of Liberty University? Do you know that for half your history, you would not allow blacks to be on your campus? And Will Willman said, I realized right then that I was not dealing with a fool. What do we have in the church today? We have absolutely segregated and we we like to talk about segregated color but you know segregated color is really only a reflection of segregated tastes and cultural style and to the degree that the church is snobbish and chooses western 
expressions of taste to be at the center of our community life as churches, we will be segregated. And that's why we do it. And it's hard work to not be segregated. Uh, You think about the people that you naturally think will become Christians, right? And generally, they're, they're not short. And generally, they don't sit in a wheelchair. And generally, they're not poor. And generally, they're not ugly. And if it's a beach, generally, if you're a man, it's not a man. Right? In other words, we follow our tastes when it comes to doing the work of the kingdom. And for the church to do this is wicked. Uh, I could go on at this at great length. But if we send messages to people that we're prissy, white, western people who... What's really important about worship is that it reinforces our cultural tastes. That's all we need to do. We don't even have to think race and color. Just worship ourselves. Have a self-congratulatory hour every week where we can talk about our culture and our tradition and our denomination. Throw the word sovereignty out there about ten times, you know. And that shows that it's not just Western, but it's Presbyterian. And it's effective, right? You drive a certain car. You have a certain kind of music, right? You use certain colors of paint. This paint is hippie paint. Right? Sort of. It's organic, you know. And you worship in a gym. Well, that says something about you, doesn't it? So here we have, out of five, 20% of the preachers and teachers in the church are black. Now, of course, back then, the chasm between white and black wasn't what it was today, right? 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 Wrong. Right? Wrong. What do you think? Yeah, it's wrong. I mean, after all, the whole battle of the New Testament is the battle between the Gentiles and the Jews over circumcision. And so the most intense conflict in the New Testament was between the Jews and the Gentiles. Guess what? Most of the New Testament is about that conflict. What's the most intense conflict today? What's the most intense conflict? If the most apparent presence of the Holy Spirit doing a new thing among the people in the ancient world was the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles were one, what would be the most intense indication of the work of the Holy Spirit in America today? What would it be? The fact that Presbyterians and Lutherans are one? The fact that... What would it be? Well, look around, and you can see that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in melding us together with Asians. We've always had more Asians. You know, the thing that I really grieve about in this church, it's actually not African Americans and whites. It's actually Hispanics. Do you notice which church in town first put up the sign welcoming Hispanics? I know one of you did because you told me. Anybody want to say? Which one was it? It's the Jehovah Witnesses. So what are you going to do about it? Brandon? Brandon? 
You know, it's very interesting. Churches have mission fields and commitment to foreign missions. And, you know, if somebody feels called to the mission field, the first thing you say to them is, have you been a missionary here? It doesn't make any sense to send somebody overseas that's been totally wrapped up in themselves and their own living room here, right? But what about churches? What sense does it make for us as a church to send money to people overseas if we don't give a rip about internationals and Hispanics and African Americans in Bloomington? It's just like wacko. <laughs> it's absolutely wacko, right? Everybody agree? Huh? Huh? Okay, I'll move on. All right. So we've got Barnabas, son of encouragement, then we got Simeon, then we got Lucius of Cyrene. That's all we know. All right? And then we have Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So Menaean was probably a foster brother of Herod. Now, which Herod was this? Well, this wasn't the Herod of the book of Acts. This was actually the Herod who tried Jesus and mocked him. Do you ever notice in the book of Luke that Pilate had some respect for Jesus? Herod was wicked. And this is the man that this guy, Manan, was brought up with. He was the Herod who tried Jesus and mocked him. The Herod also who had John the Baptist beheaded at the request of his daughter. Isn't that sweet? I mean, that would be like the Dalai Lama's brother becoming a Christian. You know, and, and, and we'd have the Dalai Lama here and worship with us Sunday morning because he'd have to come because his brother's here. Right? Now, I'm not saying that the Dalai Lama has beheaded John the Baptist. That's not my point. Prominent person who is opposed to God. And you go, wait, wait, wait. Dalai Lama isn't opposed to God. I say, yes, he is opposed to God. Wait, 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 wait. He's having a, like, service for peace. You know, that's not, that's... The Dalai Lama is opposed to God. Don't let our culture suck you in. You see, wait, wait, wait. They're having, at St. At Paul, Paul's Catholic Church, they're having a prayer, a prayer, a joint prayer service with the Dalai Lama involved. The Dalai Lama is opposed to God. You say, well, how can you say that? Everybody else disagrees. Well, I say that because, again, as I said in the pastoral prayer, all the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heaven and the earth. All the Christians of the first three centuries weren't killed because they recognized the pantheon of gods and went along to get along. Right? Instead, the confession of the early church was that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Remember how Jesus said that unless a seed falls in the ground and dies, it doesn't reproduce? That flies driving me crazy. David, if you can get him. <laughs> David's excellent at this grabbing flies. So you think of the context today of our community and the Dalai Lama coming. And it's a religious context, right? And that's why it's so hilarious to watch it, because they've got all these holy things down at City Hall and then you got Jim Billingsley coming in with these two huge limestone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And guess what? The city fathers removed them immediately. Right? Why? Well, because they weren't an artistic expression. And because they didn't call them beforehand. Well, in point of fact, they'd called them many times and emailed them, but there was no response. So they finally went ahead and did it. And so you see, the world will have any God but God. 
Do you understand that? It can be anybody. It was, it's, it's precisely what was going on in the Roman Empire. It is precisely it. The Christians were hated and were killed because they were anarchists and atheists. Those were the charges consistently the Christians were killed for violating. You're an anarchist and you're an atheist. And you go, wait a second, how could Christians be anarchists? Paul's constantly saying to obey the civil authority. It was because Christians were the one religious group that was absolutely opposed to inclusivity and to going along to get along. They would not call Caesar Lord. They would die before calling Caesar Lord. And you say, okay, that's that's anarchy. But atheism, I mean, Christians worship the true God. Yes, but they were atheists because they rejected the pantheon of gods. See, Rome was fine as long as you didn't think you had anything special. As long as you were willing to be a part of the great melting pot of Rome, where all the gods of the nations were gods, you were perfectly at home. But the minute you said all the gods of the nations are idols, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. It is he who hath made us and not we ourselves. Think of Paul in the Areopagus saying, this is the God that has given you life and breath and in whom we have our being. And he is appointed a time when he will judge every man. Well, then you see that the Roman Empire, the great polyglot, the great pantheon of gods, the great melting pot, the great America, all right, could not tolerate Christians because Christians worshipped God and said all the gods of the nations were idols. And when we are living in this context today and you look at this conversion of a man named Manan and you think that his 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 stepbrother or half-brother or whatever was Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. You think Manan was, you know, going home to Herod or whoever his relatives were and saying, well, you know, I found a new God and, uh, you know, I, I, think he, I think he should be right up there with Jupiter. <laughs> you know, I think that he should be right up there with the Delphic oracles. No, Manan, when he went home, was a Christian. And so he was a polarizing presence in every family gathering. Because all the gods of the nations were idols. And when the Dalai Lama came, he was the one person that didn't refer to him as his holiness. Not because he had anything personal against the Dalai Lama or his brother. Not because he was a crusty conservative and resented the fact that the Democrats were like trotting out somebody that was cool because he's Buddhist. Right? No, because he loves God. And he's holy. And he serves Jesus Christ. So these are the leaders placed over the church there in Antioch. We've got Barnabas, we've got Simeon, we've got Lucius, and we've got Menaean. <clears throat> and what it tells us <clears throat> is that while they, these five leaders and the rest of the church, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that the Holy Spirit sent them a message while they were worshiping the Lord. Now, I want to read a definition of worship. Worship is defined by Webster's as, quote, reverence offered a divine being or supernatural power or the act of expressing such reverence. <clears throat> 
And Vine, in his expository dictionary, says the word worship used in Scripture refers to the direct acknowledgement to God of his character and perfections, his attributes. And so what is corporate worship? Corporate worship is the public reverencing and honoring of God done by the people of God. The reverencing of God done by the people of God. So we look at verse 2. And we ask ourselves the question, whose benefit is worship for? Is it for us or is it for God? And we say worship is for God's benefit, for his reverence, for his honoring, not for ours. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't gain. But worship, by definition, is focused on God, not on us. And verse 2 says, while they were ministering, and ministering is a participle, but the root of it is the word that we get our word liturgy from. Now, how many of you dislike liturgical worship? Come on, be honest. Come on. All right, a few hands. How many of you like liturgical worship? Now, how would you define liturgical worship? Well, of course, your hands indicate how you define it. You define liturgical worship as worship where most of it comes out of a book and is read, either by the leader or by the people. That's how we define liturgical worship. We had somebody come and visit our church a number of years ago from uh, Doug Wilson, a real lover of Doug Wilson and and the ministry out at uh, Moscow, Idaho. And they came once to our worship, and then they left. And when asked why, they said, well, because I prefer liturgical worship. Now, I'm here to tell you that Every worship service is liturgical because all liturgy means is the work of the people. That's all it means. And so what we've done is we've taken the word liturgy and we've used it to to communicate a certain formal and a certain uh, book-based and a very, very often responsive, um, where the people, the, the leader, the people, the leader kind of worship. And typically worship that's focused on the very highest styles of Western music. And often, more often than not, in, 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 uh, in buildings which have been built intentionally to communicate the glory of God through the structure of the building itself, and very often, normally, buildings that have uh, a lot of graphic arts around them. Now, now, do you see where we're headed? This is what we mean by liturgical. Very focused on the arts, very musically highbrow, very book-based, where it doesn't matter what the preacher preaches because you've got the liturgy, and if the liturgy is good, the preacher can't ruin it. And, you know, I've, I've heard this again and again from people. Well, you know, the liturgy was great. Somebody was just telling me this week that they went to some church. I forget. Oh, I, yeah, I remember who it was. Anyhow, they went to some church, and the liturgy was wonderful. All right, all right, I'll tell you who it was. I'm out in Idaho, and we go to this French restaurant. Now, I'm not a snob when it comes to food. Just as long as I can be corpulent, I'm happy. All right? So I go to this restaurant, and it's a French restaurant. And we go there because we have heard that the pastor there, I mean, that the chef there was a pastor 
in France. So, so you've got a French pastor who's reformed, and he decides he's going to move to Moscow, Idaho, and open a French restaurant. So we go to lunch there, because lunch at a French restaurant is like dinner anywhere else, right? Money, okay? And, and so we're sitting there, and the guy, the chef, you know, have you ever been to a French restaurant? I've been there once before when somebody else was paying, and that was dinner. Um, but if you've ever been there, you know that the chef will often come out and speak to the people at the table. So the chef comes out and speaks to us and finds out that my brother and I are both PCA pastors. And he, he, he immediately gets very excited and says, I'm a PCA pastor. And so we look at him and we go, really, you're PCA? And he begins to tell us the story of why he's no longer in the pastorate. And that's a very sad story, which I won't tell you. But it has to do with the uh, failure of our denomination in France to submit to the word of God. And so he had a choice. They told him to shut up. And he said, I I need to go on a leave of absence so you can pray for this man. Anyhow, um, he then tells us that a little while ago he went to, and I don't know the name of it. Some of you probably do. But he went to Calvin's church in Geneva for worship. All right. Do any of you know the name of it? St. Peter's. Okay. So he's there at worship, and he said the liturgy was wonderful. He said then the preaching started, and he said the preaching was absolutely awful. And in fact, during the sermon, the preacher was actually attacking John Calvin. I think Calvin would think it was interesting, maybe funny. And so we think of liturgy used that way, and we realize what we're talking about, aren't we? He said the liturgy is wonderful. Well, why? Well, because when you can't trust your pastors, in fact, when your pastors are sent down from on a high in a liturgical system, in a hierarchical system, because hierarchy and liturgy go together, all right? I just read in the New York Times yesterday that the man who is in the Vatican, who is overseeing what? He is overseeing the integrity of the priests in the Roman Catholic Church at the Vatican, right? Has just been suspended by the Vatican because they had a program in Italy where a whole bunch of priests went behind a voice and face uh, jumbling technology and talked about what they really believed about sodomy. And, and they were all saying that they think it's fine. And this guy was quoted in the Times as saying that, you know, it's absolutely fine to have sex with other men. Well, the mistake he made is even though it jumbled his, his, his voice and his face, he was in his office. And the people at the Vatican noticed his office. If you're in a hierarchical system, And this is the corruption that's through the system. Do you understand why you would focus on liturgy? There's a book. You've fought over it for centuries. You may not alter that book. And so you can have Anglicans who go to a service and they're absolutely content simply to have the prayers and the the scripture lessons absolutely out of the book. No expectations whatsoever for the proclamation of the word of God. None. Do you understand this? And this is what we call liturgy. Do the people really have to work in such a system? 
Well, I would argue typically no. And you say, well, that's unfair. And I say, you know, all of us slip into formalism very easy. It's so easy for us to go into a system where there's just constant repetition, where it, it begins to feel like our shoes or like our easy chair. It conforms to our body. The, the corns have a little bulge out the side of the leather, you know, and we're formed by it, and it is the expression of our spirituality. I am not opposed to formal liturgies. I actually love them. But let me tell you, anything, anything that allows you to escape doing the work of worship, you, ends up being an obstacle to the glory of God. And what that means is that when we gather to worship, we are supposed to come prepared to do work. And I would maintain that often formalism ends up causing us to not feel like we have to work. The preacher does his thing, we do ours, we read it off a sheet of paper, and you never have to feel convicted. You say, well, that's how I feel convicted. I say, good, God bless you. But brothers, we have to be discerning about these things. Now, I have a few propositions that I want to go through. Originally, this work, this word liturgy or liturgia was used for somebody doing a public service at his own expense. So if you judged at the city gates, you didn't get compensated for it. This was your liturgy, all right? Your public contribution that you didn't get paid for. And then it began to be used for, for instance, in Luke 1.23, when the days of Zechariah's priestly service were ended, he went back home, John the Baptist's father. And this word priestly service, again, has the same root as the word worship in our text, liturgy or liturgias. Those who led religious ceremonies, carrying out tasks delegated by them God, were referred to as ministers to God, and it had the same root. So when we do work for God, we are worshiping, and typically this work is the labor of reverence. And so we could refer, instead of a worship service, we could call it a labor of reverence or reverence work. And it may be good for us to never refer to this as a worship service again because it doesn't communicate anything to us. Maybe we should call it reverence work. Now, that does communicate, doesn't it? Reverence, we know what that is, right? It's not about us, it's about God. And work means what? Well, that you're going to sweat. That it's going to be hard. That you're going to be tired when it's done. That it's going, if it's spiritual, it's going to get into your heart. That it's work, right? And knowing it's work, Remove certain expectations. When you get done a hard day's work, you don't think you're going to be uplifted, do you? You think you're going to be tired and ready for dinner in bed, right? This is how we should think about worship. In Romans 13, it says, Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants. And the word there is like to your liturgoi of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So even rulers are appointed by God to do worship. 
So your civil authority is worshiping God. That's the work. All right. Those who are over us in the Lord are doing the work. Those who are over us in the civil authority are doing the work that God has appointed them to. Now, first of all, this statement, worship is not player entertainment, but it's work. And so the proper question to ask at the end of the worship service isn't just did the preacher do a good job, but did I, did you do good work? Not did the pianist or choir members start their work for God on time, but did I, did my family start their work of worship on time? How many of you were on time today who aren't normally? I say a big thank you. <laughs> I know how hard it is to be on time, as all of you know. But boy, it amazes me. You know, you, it, it, I remember going to the Boston Symphony, and if you did not get there before the symphony started, you waited the whole first work. And the ushers were there to keep you from going in that place until there was a break. But when we come to worship, we're like, it's cool, dude. You know, I mean, what's happening? Well, what's happening is the work of reverencing God. And it's a pity when there is more discipline about getting into a recital late. You don't do it, do you? Then there is the worship of God. We should be on time, shouldn't we? It's not entertainment, it's work. Second, worship is not focused on man, but on God. We can have a whole sanctuary of people feeling totally good after a worship service. But the real question isn't whether we liked it all or whether the new people attending liked it all, but did God like it all? That's the question. Did our work honor God? What about, can you understand me if I say, is the painting in here that has been done honoring to God? Bob and Jake and Davey, all these guys that painted. What about the steel work? What about the tip-up concrete work? What about the windows? And I'll tell you, if you're honest and I'm alone with you, you'll tell me whether or not it honors God. Well, what about you're sitting there right now? Are you honoring God? Is your heart open to the Word of God? Are you reverencing God by listening to His Word? You can judge your work in a worship service. You can see whether or not you're doing good work. Is God right now in your heart receiving glory and honor and praise? Is that what your heart is? Man looketh on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. We don't want people here to have an experience. We want God to be served and praised here. This is God's house. It's not mine. It's not Mike's. It's not the elders. It's not our women's. It's not Cindy. That isn't Cindy's kitchen. It's God's kitchen. Right. This is God's day. This is God's word. We're here to bring God glory. Number three, worship is not an option, but a duty. The command of scripture to us and to our children isn't. Listen, if you have any free time next Sunday, remember to the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Or let everything that has some discretionary time and is so inclined, praise the Lord. Or if you sense a teachable moment with your children, you might want to use it to lead family devotions, provided, of course, that the time spent won't cut into Monday night football or make Carol late for volleyball practice. It's absurd. And that's how we live, isn't it? God comes last. Absolutely last. 
And let me tell you, we've been through this with Taylor. Well, you know, they have soccer games on Sunday. And, you know, Taylor learns discipline through soccer. This is our son, Taylor, right here. Stand up, would you please? Come on, stand up. So this is that Taylor, okay? All right, sit down. Stand up. Simon says, Simon says stand up. So listen, Mary Lee and I deal with this. You need to deal with it. What is your attitude towards the Lord's Day and worship? Where does this time have in your heart? Where does it have in your heart? Have we really gotten to the point where one day maybe if soccer doesn't compete and, and an hour and a half, is that where we are? You go back in church history and you see people always gave all of Sunday to the worship of God. Now, it wasn't all formal worship. Some of it was eating together and fellowshipping. You know what they did in the early Reformation churches? For between one and two hours prior to every single worship service, does anybody know? Do you know what they did? The people came and the elders read consecutively through Scripture so that every year everybody in the church would hear all of the Old Testament once, all of the New Testament twice, and I believe all of the book of Psalms every single month. It was called reader's services. And they'd have psalms that they sang interspersed between the texts. All right? And today it's like, Tim, you've been talking a long time now. And I'm getting hungry. And my work of reverence is being interfered with by my body. And yet you would sit there transfixed a football game, even if you were losing. For how many hours? How about a soccer game? Football game, three hours, right? Worship is not an option, but it's a duty. And the command of Scripture to us and to our children is to give glory to God. And it's our privilege to do it. God has given us music to be able to do it, and reading, and a book to be able to do it. God has given us the Lord's table, the sacraments. He's, God has given us musicians. He's given us everything we need to have a feast. And then, tightly, we conscribe the feast and press it and compress it. Imagine telling your foreman at work that you'll carry out his instructions, provided, of course, that it fits into your schedule. And yet we treat Sunday morning worship as if it were an option. We tell God by our actions that our hobbies and our sports and our careers and our vacations and almost anything has a more legitimate claim on our time than the duty and commandment for us and our children to pray, to sing praises, to eat the Lord's Supper, to read the Bible, to give money to the Lord's work, and to listen to the preaching of God's truth. Worship is not an option, either for us or for our children. It's a duty, an obligation, a responsibility, a command. It is what the Creator made us for. Worship is not play or entertainment, but work. It's not focused on man, but a God. It's not an option, but a duty. And it's not a feeling, but an action. There will be times when we feel dead or sad or tired while we have our daily devotions. But we are not called to feel good about them, but simply to do them. 
There will be times when our temper and impatience against a family member will cause us to think that we shouldn't go into church on a Sunday morning. But we do not stop worshiping God because we don't feel like it, do we? No, we are rather to get our feelings in order so that our worship may please God. And the best way to keep our feelings from getting in the way of our actions is to begin times of private and public worship with confession. And so this is why I say to you, not only should you be here on time, but you should be here early so you have time to sit in a chair and prepare your heart for worship. You know, we blithely bop in. We've just had a conversation about how pretty our girlfriend's hair, new hairstyle is, right? And then the band starts, and it's like, where's God? Where's God? We're entering his temple. You say, no, it's a gem. I say, no, it's his temple. Prepare your hearts. How do we do that? You confess your sin. Then you turn to your wife and you say, sweetheart, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You say to your children, I'm sorry. You go to somebody in the church, you say, I'm sorry. Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go make peace. How many times, those of us who have married, come on, how many times? Be honest. How many times have you apologized to your husband or wife as worship begins? Huh? How many? Well, I guess I'm the only wicked one here. Okay, good. Thank you, John. I was feeling lonely. If you haven't done that, your heart isn't tender before the Lord. If you're married and you have children, there should be regular asking of forgiveness on the part of you as a father and a husband. Right? Okay. Not a feeling, but an action. It doesn't matter how you feel. Get your heart right. Clean it up. You don't go and wash your hands before dinner because it feels so good. Unless you're Bob. And what about Bob? Remember how he always washed his hands? We don't wash our hands because it feels good. We wash it because it prepares us to eat, and our mother will tell us to go do it if we don't. Number five, worship is not ultimately for our own edification, but for God's glory. The final question to ask about any time of worship isn't, was I built up, challenged, strengthened, or uplifted, but was God glorified? Number six, worship is not an act just of the mind, soul, or heart, but of the body also. I keep emphasizing this. And I've heard other people that knew nothing about our emphasis here saying the same thing. We stand. We kneel. We lift our hands. Sometimes we should be on our faces on the floor. Why? Because the body and the mind and the heart are connected. God is pleased for us to humble ourselves. God is pleased for us to look like a little baby holding his hands up to his daddy. Holy men of old prayed with lifted hands. Calvin says it's a universal of prayer that we lift our hands. Okay? Number seven, worship is not for an hour a week, but all of life. In fact, not just all of life, but all of eternity. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Holy Spirit spoke to them during their time of worship. And what did he say? He said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the foreign mission field. And I love that. My sister is a feminist. My sister is a rabid feminist. My sister is an intense rabid feminist. 
trust me. So one time we were talking about pastors and, and, and elders being men, and she said, you know, I wouldn't have such a problem with that if it weren't for the fact that those who go out on the mission field are often the women, and the men who are really good are kept back at the church. And so what we see here is while the church was at worship, what, what happened? Well, set apart what? What happened? Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the foreign mission field. In other words, take your two best men and send them out, right? And this happened in worship. Isn't that beautiful? The Holy Spirit spoke and led and directed the church during worship. And Barnabas and Saul were not long for the world. They were gone. Do you have that kind of expectation for worship? That it's active, it's not passive. That the Lord here could tell us to do something like that. That it doesn't matter what our mood is. That it's about God, it's not about us. That it's hard, that you will sweat. And that it won't be like tightly controlled. And it won't be like do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. It's active. It's not a ritual. Now, everybody has rituals. I'm not against rituals. But worship is hard, hard work. It may be good for us to refer to this place and to what we do here as the work of reverence. The work of reverence. Have you reverenced God today and here? Have you done the work? That's what this place is dedicated to. It may look like a gym, but it's a house for the work of reverence. Let's pray.